0: Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet, risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. To find all episodes of this show, simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the U.S., or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the U.S. to Asia, or $100 business class life tickets from Africa round trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com/mtp or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to mtp the number 4 and the letter u.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. From what I read, um, you were instrumental in starting one of the first gold, if not the first gold ETF, also known as GLD, probably the biggest by now. Uh, How did that happen?
1: I was working as a consultant with the World Gold Council, And I had already been the first ETF portfolio manager in the U.S. with Deutsche Bank with the country baskets, and I had just gotten off a four-year consultancy with uh, Barclays Global Investors, now part of BlackRock, to do the iShares. So when I was working with GF, uh, with the World Gold Council, I was doing some asset allocation. We had a paper that was published in the Journal of Investing on Defensive Assets and comparing gold and where it belongs in the defensive asset class. And then uh, I had suggested, actually, you know, there were different institutional uses. Why don't we do a depository receipt on gold? And then I introduced uh, uh, Richard Scott Ram and uh, Rob Weinberg from the World Gold Council, to Joseph Keenan at the Bank of New York to do basically depository receipts on gold. Now, one thing a lot of people don't understand the fund structure, or the structure of PLD is different than, a, uh, than an ETF. They actually call it an the ETP, exchange traded products. Because it's like an ADR, it's it, it's a depository receipt on the underlying gold. The reason this is important is that the capital gains is taxed taxed like a collectible, twenty nine percent, not normal capital gains tax treatment. So, yeah. uh, uh, and a lot of uh, uh, advisors buy for this is a. Uh, uh, a peccadillo of mine a lot of uh advisors will buy for clients without realizing that it's not a fund that it doesn't have the tax advantages of most etfs and uh and you know i really think that if you're taking an advisor fee and you're buying something for someone you should read the fact sheet and the perspe- and the summary prospectus
0: yeah you know that's that's a whole other topic about reading um the information that's actually behind um these more structured investment products if you step back for for just a second in, in people's minds, um, and to an extent also in my mind, too, I've, I've, I've been doing more research um, and tried to gain more knowledge in the industry. For most people, ETFs are basically low-fee mutual funds. So instead of having an active manager who does a rebalancing or does changes um, on a daily basis depending on that particular research that the fund does, in ETF, in most people's minds, is there's an algorithm and the computer makes all these decisions and the algorithm is basically... Um, laid bare um, when you sign up to an ETF. You can actually see what this ETF will invest in, basically for the lifetime of the ETF. Is that correct?
1: Uh, it actually goes deeper than that. Okay. Let's start with the fact that aside from special products like GLD or USO, which is a, uh, a, a commodity uh, trading pool, and some, and some of the exchange traded notes, most- Most of the products we're talking about are actual 1940 Act funds like any mutual fund with an exception or an exemption that instead of the shares being redeemed at the distributor on every night by any uh, holder, the stock, the shares by small holders generally trade on the exchange, and it is only through a, uh, a a mechanism, creations and redemptions, that you can create or redeem new shares with the distributor, and you only do that by putting mini portfolios in or getting mini portfolios out of the fund. It's called an in-kind exchange, and uh, uh, and it's a free receipt and delivery, and that's why ETFs have let far less tax. Uh, implications, and that's a structural issue. This is true whether or not the fund is just a simple cap-weighted index fund, whether it's an algorithm, a robo doing an algorithm, and and fully disclosing it. They're all transparent, or ne- or a, an actively managed equity fund. With the newest <laughs> being now, you can have actively managed. Uh, Mutual funds with with uh, semi-transparent structures like the Blue Tractor, where you only have to display part of your holdings, uh, a, a segment, as and give full statistics, and then you you can have different trading baskets every day, so you can use the, the ETF mechanism for free receipts and deliveries without actually exposing all of your position. This is, this is something that's just uh, 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 was given by the SEC ruled last year in 2020 and a lot of of funds are starting to take advantage of it. Let me put it another way to you though, Torsten. Basically the, and I I wrote about this back in 2002 and it's finally now hitting the market.
0: Why is it advantageous to Because you don't want to uh, expose what you're invested in um, to the general public, only to the ones who are invested in the ETF and how do you make that decision, right? If it's if it's in, hidden from the public, isn't it the mutual fund then?
1: They are mutual funds. The ETFs are 40-act mutual funds. Right, the, mutual
0: funds, but with very low fees. Let's put it this way.
1: Not not necessarily. Not all okay. of them have very low fees. It, it depend, depends which one. A couple of them have pretty high fees, over 100 basis points. It depends what it is. This is what I'm trying to explain. Yeah. The, the, mutual, the mutual fund, whether it's an index, Let's put it another way. Index funds generally have low fees. Now, whether it's uh, whether it's a mutual fund, uh, say on Vanguard or Fidelity, Spartan or Schwab, whether or not the index fund is a uh, an ETF or a uh, a fund that you put in a four hundred one k, it's still a low fee fund and it's analogous. And since those funds Cap-weighted mutual funds, uh, cap-weighted index funds don't tend to have a lot of trades anyway. There's a, there's a slight capital gains advantage in the ETF, but it's not, it, it's not so dramatic. The ETF is more, a more simply a more efficient modern structure of the old mutual fund in many, many ways. And that's why now you're seeing more active managers turn to the ETF. And, it's certainly better for the investor in all ways. Uh, Not not only do you have the tax advantages, and not only are you able to fix your risk and know what you are paying price at a specific time, which you can't do with co-trading at NAV in a mutual fund, but uh, it also eliminates the need for cash and cash drag. Most importantly, uh, unlike the uh, traditional structure, the ETF manager does not have to manage to daily cash flows. These transactions are not done in cash. None of the transactions are done in cash so they don't have to worry about whether it's 30,000 more sold or bought uh, on a given day unless there's a creation or redemption it doesn't affect them and if there is they still don't have to do anything because it's in the size of the fund so in that way the the uh, it actually helps an active manager more because he can he or she can manage only to their own investment decision and not have to worry about what uh, liquidating capital gains. Oh, that's my oldest idea. I don't like it that much anymore, but it's got such a high capital gain. I can't get rid of that one. Let me get rid of a pressure idea. And, you know, that kind yeah. of doesn't happen now with an ETF. It's simply a more efficient, it's a modern structure. The old structure through through the distributor is really an archaic structure. There are a few reasons like 401k that they're still in existence, but really it benefits the shareholder in every way for it to be be there. And it only uh, uh, doesn't benefit the the fund company in in, uh, perceived uh, perceived old ways. And uh, like a lot of things in the investment world, we always say fear and greed are the greatest motivators. Actually, the greatest motivator is resistance to change. The
0: taxes, probably.
1: Uh, Yeah,
0: I I think ETFs and the way that you invest a little more passive, um, so you're not um, looking for a mutual fund. and we've seen a lot of statistics that uh, the passive investing is as profitable over the long term um, probably more because the fees are often lower um, not necessarily that's something i learned that etfs i associated them them necessarily with lower fees but i've, I've just learned it isn't one thing that a lot of people um but including me don't really understand with the etfs especially is there seems to be a particular emphasis to trade on their clothes right And you just said there isn't a lot of trade, there's less trading, there's an in-kind redemption. But it seems there is um, the myth, maybe it's a myth out there, that ETFs um, especially, because a lot of their trading happens at the close of uh, the trading day, they seem to zoom out and change pretty intensively the close auction that often now differs quite a bit from how the stock traded during the whole day.
1: That's absolutely the case. And uh, furthermore... The, the, that's that. Fi- there's that 15-minute period after the, uh, the general close of the market, where professionals can trade and true up their ETFs, and a, a lot of the ETF trading happens then.
0: Do you think so it has a major impact? So, is there, be- is There's probably like hedge funds who trade against us that basically develop an algorithm, see what the ETFs have to do, and basically front run them. Or is that not possible with the close auction?
1: No, it, it, it's it's front running isn't what I would call it, but it, they 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 have strategies where they think that at the totally designed on that fifteen minute aftermarket to try to do certain things. Yeah. Sometimes it, it, it's I would call them arbitrage strategies rather than automatic arbitrage because you know it's it's not a free lunch. Sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. Yeah,
0: as long as it's fifty one percent, you're good to go. Um, I mean, front running. I define it as slightly bigger. It's not necessarily the the whole flash trading thing, um, where people actually know what transactions are going on. Like that seems to be a big topic. I don't know if you looked into this. We can shed some light on this. Um, there was a big debate, and when Robinhood seemed to be close to bankruptcy because of the the new requirements in order to, um, to um, put in securities and deposits for the higher uh, for the stocks that were very volatile. The, the, a lot of um, the, the, the plumbing of the, the, the actual brokerage come to light and a lot of people assume that Citadel, the one who buys the trading information from Robinhood, they seem to make a lot of money. Although Robinhood doesn't charge you for any orders, they basically tell Citadel there's someone who wants to buy something. And it seems like Citadel makes a good amount of money from this. Do you think this is a myth too or that's actually happening and Citadel makes a couple billion dollars from this?
1: I don't claim to have specific expertise in this area. Uh, the, the, the Robin Hoods and the uh, uh, other ones that have uh, uh, acorns and the, the smaller ones that are proliferating out there in the last uh, six to 18 months, 24 months, uh, have, you know, obviously a strong following, have people of their own and have their way of doing things. But I haven't begun to go gun- gone go into their plumbing or their business models one thing about me and all of my writings and and my particular bent is i am not a trader i i i am an investor i i write i create products i put things in minds of what's good investment not necessarily what you're going to make in the next 20 minutes and close out your book you know, I'm not against hedge fund tradings. I'm just saying that's not my particular area of expertise. My area of expertise is, uh, uh, and I have many of them, ETFs, ESG, uh, alternative data, and things that are used. But again, uh, like alternative data, there are some that are fleeting and, you know, can only be used for trading purposes. And there are some web scraping data that have uh latency of up to 45 or 90 days. I tend to stick to, to the latter more than the former on the work and research that I do. Not that there's anything wrong with like raising data helping hedge funds trade.
0: Yeah, yeah. it seems like uh, there's a lot of needs out there. I, I've been um, looking at and I find it really interesting that you say that into the alternative data universe. And there seems to be a lot of interest from um, hedge funds primarily, but I think this also goes down to individuals where you basically identify a data set that can be from anywhere right that can be uh, i don't know the uh, insurance um premiums for um in different states for drivers on average with a certain age it kind of random data and there's a lot more data that mobility data now there's all these sensors um and it seems there is a burgeoning market um uh, for combining this data, um, maybe reducing the noise a little bit and then finding a way to trade on those. As you say, the lag time is quite, it's quite long, can be a couple of, of months, but it is something that potentially in back tests, people usually run these back tests, that makes money and then people run these strategies forward. Do you feel, and I think this has been, been going on for a long time, but now there's this new data proliferating. There seems to be a new boom to that industry. Do you think it is the new oil?
1: I, I- I'm a big fan of alternative data. Here, here, uh, let's go back to indexing and the basic arguments for and against indexing. If you believe that you as a professional man, investment manager knows what value is and is smarter than the market and that most of the people in the market are stupid and because I'm an investment professional I can do better, which none of the stats bear out, but if you believe that, uh, th- then the market is not efficient. If you believe, and you the results. If you believe SPIVA, if you believe all the rest, that what what that mar- cap weighted market index represents is professional flows, is dollar weighted average opinion of the of what the, what a stock is, each stock of the market is worth at any given point in time. So, in order to actually ha- have a better idea of what that stocks really work, you have to be smarter than that huge ca- uh, and usually mobile and uh, Experts uh, expert uh, dollar-weighted cap flows that are out there. And guess what? Most actors using these old uh, value metrics that are already in the market, already known in the balance sheet, things like that, Are uh, they're left behind because that, that data isn't giving them anything or any advantage over there. Enter alternative data. How do you get an advantage? You have to look at something that normal investors are, are not looking at, that is not already in the multiple, that is not already it, uh, factored into the price, that is not already uh, a known quantity to most investors. And that's why you go, you, you take a look at, uh, credit card receipt data and see what's doing there. You look at data that says what CEOs are doing and which ones have been absent or present. You look at ESG data, which is really a proxy for, for management quality in many ways, and what ESG data helps you do without argument on the in the broad sense, at, at, at best helps you by eliminating the bottom 25 to 50% of companies in each industry the ones who have the more regressive policies who have not been proactive to... Help uh, to complying with rules in environmental change. Who have not been proactive in uh, uh, new workforce uh, technologies and employing their uh, um, their human capital assets and in uh, having two-way flows of conversation and ha- you know and, and, and diversity and inclusion. All of those things are risk factors if you're if you're uh, if you're uh, backwards and reactive. And the same with governance. Those who still have poison pills. Those who have uh, be- uh, are violating the rules each year by violation tracker things like that. The- those kinds of things. So yeah, alternative data is in that way. I pre- I actually have two clients, uh, 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 three clients who are in that alternative space. Uh, uh, one yep. is brand loyalties that looks at luminosity and does an excellent job of predicting. Uh, which companies are gaining or losing share within their industry uh, uh, using what, what the brightness of certain signals on the web which I could go into further one uh, the DTCC one, one of my main clients what they you, you know how there were these 13f strategies and things they now, Won't provide it on individual companies on the fly, but they will give you the last three-day average of the group of different kinds of investors, like hedge funds, institutional banks, uh, uh, what do you call RIAs, and retail. And they'll tell you who's doing what trades you can do the same kind of strategies whether you're looking for expert or not, not waiting for thirty days or after or forty five days after the thirteen Fs come in, but on the fly that's alternative data that wasn't available before the hedge funds are using uh, yeah. uh,
0: there there seems to be an endless amount right so that, that I just saw for before. when well, I mean, the short squeezes were on and there were obviously a lot of data about which which um um, companies who have the highest short interest. And then there was yes. a lot of sentiment that would you could lay against this, and not just you find companies with high short interest, also that actually get a lot of um, buzz, so to speak, on Twitter and on Reddit. So that's kind of that's very far-reaching and probably not very exact. But there seems to be an endless universe of this alternative data. The, the The problem seems to be how do you how do you backtest it, and how do you then make a judgment call?
1: Um, yes, how so, these so we'll things will look ahead. in the future, right? And some of it has longevity, like the brand loyalties, luminosity signal I was talking to you about. They actually have data on that going back to the beginning of Amazon Web Services, 2008. So yeah, that's that,
0: Amazing,
1: yeah. Yeah, but uh, some of the others, uh, you know, you don't have as much back data on the DTCC data, for, which is aggregates that are done in real time. Uh, even though the data didn't exist, they can re, you know, they have the components of that. So they, they have it recast back to ni- uh, 2012. Yeah. It depends on whether or not it's possible to recast a, back, uh, a data set and, you know, backtesting and then you can have your thesis and say, okay, it worked in this time period. Now, Thorsten, Thorsten rather, I've been a uh, quant for 40 years. I, I can tell you definitively what a quant does best is uh, predict the past with ever greater precision. <laughs> I know, but that's not what we're
0: interested in. We're interested in the future. Yeah, I've been running sure. into the same problem. I've been uh, helping out a couple of clients with their back tests. And the, the, the accuracy seems to be improving because the AI models that we, we work with and I work exactly. with they are really good better. at curve fitting. So they're, they're really good at finding trends in the past. Exactly. But that doesn't mean, um, but, but, but as closer they get to the curve, as more fragile they become. And the, uh, when you extrapolate them and when you, when you run actual trades on it, they have trouble um, figuring out is are are they within a certain trend? So the prediction quality has really dropped off. I feel because the AI gives you the way the, we look at these AIs and validate these models, they give you the the illusion that they actually found a the trend. No, they don't know, really know, right? They can't tell you it's a black box system. <laughs> and we, we there's this big example of of Renaissance, right? Renaissance um, yeah. has been a hedge fund, has been very successful, and they've been using Signal. Um, recognition and have been um, u- supposedly uh, using technology that comes from, from from audio signal recognition. And they've been doing very well. They probably never had the down year and they usually made 40 to 50 percent a year. This year in 2020 was terrible for them yep. because all these signals, they work in a certain market, but 2020 was just not that kind of market. And that's pretty rare. That hasn't happened in at least a decade.
1: Well, that- But those new black swan markets, or whatever you'd like to call them, happen all the time. The market has an infinite number of permutations it can take, and I won't say an infinite number of dynamics that affect it, but certainly more more dynamics than I I or any AI system and certainly any human being can account for. There are just so many things that change. You know, as time changes going forward, there's a whole new spectrum of things that haven't happened before that haven't come before that become a factor that are no longer a factor that start trading in groups that start not trading in groups that, uh, the information goes this way. The information goes that way. That's important. Now that's no longer important. Uh, these companies no longer do this. It's no longer a factor. Those are the things. This is the classic problem value investors have because if you're looking at book to price, uh, Over the last 17 years, two thirds of the market cap of the S and P doesn't have any book value to to, to go to. The book value—it's what value, what the the asset that's being valued, are things like human capital, patents, brand uh, brand value, reputation, all things that uh, uh, social goodness, corporate citizenship, all things that. um, you know the hard core fonts quant- oh that's uh, that's what that's fuzzy that's nonsense they're intangible they'll never come back that's what these companies are structured on the past utilization of factories has nothing to do with today's company uh uh, uh inventory turnover has nothing to do with today's companies
0: <laughs> yeah yeah i mean the value investors and i counted myself as 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 one they they just never get a buying opportunity, you know, they've been staying in cash for like decades now because, because it is there's just nothing to buy that's cheap
1: enough. Because they're using it uh the same accounting statements, balance sheet, uh uh um uh, what do you call it? Balance sheet income statement and statement of changes in financial positions that were uh that were perfectly good 150 years ago or 100 years ago in an industry-based economy, and they're being applied to something that's not an industry-based economy, and they don't account for the, the top assets of a company.
0: Yeah, exactly. So I think this is where we we, we see Warren Buffett change his strategy quite some time ago. And um, he had to, right, because there were very few companies that had certain potential to, to, to fit into this, um, this screening that he basically had invented before. So it doesn't really work. He, he has a new screening, obviously he's, he's changed his, his way of investment, how he finds investment targets and it, it seems to work out for him, but it's quite a transition. When you, when you think of these fallen angels, so to speak, which, which used to be the mainstay of, of value investment. We we have companies like GameStop, right? That seem to be a good value investment, so to speak. They seem to be relatively cheap, um and they seem to have maybe a story to recover from, from the from the looming death. Maybe not, but at least probably it was worth a shot. But the actual uh visas that people bought into was completely different, right? It was a short squeeze, it was something that was was, was screaming right. market right. manipulation and uh, not by an individual hedge fund but, but like a, a group of people but
1: you know What's the word I'm looking for there are good things and bad things about the way these things are are coming out and people are looking at the equity markets and things like that uh it reminds me somewhat of the uh, uh, the fad in the late nineties to uh uh do the uh when you uh bought somebody's uh Uh, day trading the the day trading fad in the late 90s where people started looking at the market as a casino and something they could win big at with the right tip or whatever then looking at as what you know what most people especially you know people who aren't with the highest capitalized hedge funds in the world what most people should be looking at it which is an investment mechanism and a mechanism to save for the various things you want in your retirement and you know everyone's in on these things, but there are prudent things you should be doing. And unless you really have a reason to believe you have better information in the market on a certain stock a certain company or what's going on here you, you know you're you're swimming with the sharks and you, you you know you might you might catch a couple of nice things but you're going to get eaten eventually if you, if you keep doing that it's like being in, like trying to make money at a casino long term you might make a great you know you might go in there and you might make sixty thousand, a 100 000, maybe even a million in one night but if you keep playing you're going to lose
0: yeah that definitely seems to be the problem with this. You you got to go big and quick and as longer you play as more you can be in trouble. I think a lot of people <laughs> have figured that out too. But it's 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 quite amazing that these these short squeezes come back. I mean they they they've been around for for a long time. Um but it's it's the the, the vigor and the the way they've been analyzed. So I read a lot of these Reddit posts, you know, these people know what they're doing. Um at least the the, the initial um instigators so to speak, they have done a careful analysis. Obviously they don't know um, what, what will happen and if enough other people join to that cause. And I found it really interesting that the initial post on, on, on Reddit, who actually uh, talked about GameStop and the potential short, short squeeze, it recommended at the time to buy the longest dated options so three month out. And the, the initial short squeeze when, when GameStop first started to, to explode so much, that was exactly 10 days after that option expired. So how, how unpleasant is this? If you believe in it, if you buy the three-month option, it, it goes worthless. And maybe you didn't buy another one because you think the stock is never going to move. And then suddenly after that, it starts moving, uh, which is I find that really strange, um, a really strange time. It should have moved probably within that initial time frame, but it didn't move at all.
1: Well, you know, you're trying to herd cats and make them do things and sometimes you can herd cats but you it's really hard to herd cats on a timetable
0: yeah yeah i call that impossible. i call it impossible (laughs) Not, not just not possible one thing that's closer to the etfs and maybe maybe it's foolish for me to think but isn't there a way that instead of doing etfs which to an extent to an extent, right, were, were introduced because it was hard to rebalance your own portfolio. Now that it's free, it does have a tax effect, but it does, it's basically free, so to speak, with uh, these these zero commission brokers. Why don't people just basically do their own ETF at home, right? It's basically just a computer algo that says, I want 10% of whatever is in the s p or I want it exactly structured like the s p Is it really just a tax reason that ETFs still exist that do exactly that?
1: Well there is tax efficiency but again it's not only which stocks you want but in what proportion and how, how do you say uh, save it one of the uh the original um uh market that bill sharp envisioned he, he never envisioned a cap-weighted portfolio he just thought it was all the stocks and it was a theoretical the first people who did this in 1973 bill faust jim verton and scotty mcpone that, that uh what mac what they uh basically came up with it. Originally they were trading an equal weighted portfolio and they were getting killed. In 1973 transaction costs were very expensive. They were not this. Yeah. And then, then they ran across this S&P thing, which was the S&P 400 at the time, well, soon to be the 500, which came from an old Cals Commission capturing these cap weighted foes. And you know what they discovered? That if you're a portfolio manager and you if you buy this today and no, none of the stocks leave the index and everything, you don't have to rebalance the next day you are already holding the right proportion that's in the index this this is something that seems obvious but really people don't understand the genius of that from a portfolio management standpoint there's so you know there's no rebalancing you have to do and guess what even if you're paying zero dollars to your broker for a trade especially if you're 500 stocks or more you're paying you're paying something in impact cost over time as you're trading in the market and then there's the tax implication so yeah there are of course now these uh custom indexing shops these uh uh a a number of these that are doing this what they call direct indexing and things like that so they can do customized for your portfolio but yeah they don't have tax advantages and uh you know and It it depends on the weighting. But, um, like, again, one of the supposed uh, truisms is that equal weighting will outperform cap weighting, and it always depends when and what period. I got to tell you, over the last 10 years, RSP, which is the equal weighted S&P 500, and with a 20 basis point fee from Invesco, has underperformed quite a bit the S&P 500 IVV or VOO. And by that, I can imagine. Yeah,
0: I can imagine because we have this huge trend-following universe, right? So every every trend is just getting bigger. So you literally, I find this amazing that one of the biggest companies on the planet, Apple, is also the one that's growing the most, and that's, that's just the momentum it that has reached, especially the last couple of years. It's just astonishing to me. I did never see that coming. Maybe, maybe, and obviously, not just maybe, obviously the market knows something. I do not, right? The market seems to know that these companies will be even bigger. And Apple is now, um, I don't know, bigger than the, the GDP of the UK. I mean, it's, right. it's incredible.
1: Yeah, it is interesting. And, you know, each company has its own story. And as time goes on, they'll eventually not always move in the same way. That much I can tell you. Which one will move the wrong way first and what's going to happen? That I can't necessarily tell you. I do know that. That's what at, I
0: wanted to know from you. That's why I have you on.
1: If I had to pick one that 10 years from now will be as big or bigger from where it is now of, of the top five or six, it would be Amazon because yeah. they're constantly creating new value. They're constantly looking ahead and looking at what creates new value. And they're not stuck in a model saying, hey, we're geniuses. It's worked this way. It's always worked this way. It's always going to work this way. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, you're I, right.
0: Absolutely, that's that's really company company ethos there. But I I feel like they are also the worst in terms of bureaucracy. I've never seen a company that's so that's a tech company that has so much bureaucracy and so many layers. That's it's structured like IBM in the seventies. Like well, holy smokes, it
1: works because, for them so far because they're trying to do and be at the forefront of so many different things. Everything from electric cars to alternative energy to you know uh, look. Who, who thought Amazon Web Services would be their most po- profitable business over anything that they, they sold over the internet?
0: Well, I always believed in that. I, I was like customer number five or something. So I was in the early, early betas, yeah. And It so we, yeah. just looked so good and it was so well done, especially it scaled up uh, a couple of years later. And there's literally no cost to them. So, I mean, saying that this is the most profitable, they can play around with the cost, right? They, they, right. they put the and cost they... into the retail arm and then the profits stay with Amazon Web Services. It's a little unfair.
1: Again, yeah, look at their R&D expenditures as compared to Google. I mean, not Google. I meant to say Facebook. Uh, m- much more, you know, R&D expenditures. Much more of that going forward. Things like that. I think Facebook is eventually very vulnerable for a number of reasons. But I'm not. I'm, I'm not about to short it today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, is yeah. that, that would me- be a
0: risky undertaking. Um, but I agree with you. Um, Facebook definitely doesn't have this technology stack, and um, most of their money comes from 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 violating privacy laws, let's put it this way. So they they don't have a lot that consumers really value if they are not, you know, dropped into um, whatever social interaction is going on there. So I think I fully agree with you. They're very vulnerable.
1: And and Um, they they become too much of a political football and that's, uh, or soccer ball, if you wish, because it's global, it's not just the U.S. (laughs) uh, Yeah, Absolutely. they they have the high profile for the wrong reasons, and they're they, and they're considered so dangerous to so many people. It's just you know uh, there are just too many constituencies building against them.
0: Yeah, I have the same impression. Absolutely, um, but I've been wrong so many times, so I, it probably doesn't matter at all. Yeah. Um, one thing, though, just going back to the ETFs. Um, one thing and you, you did this with gold um so it's something that wasn't um within the reach of normal investors at least not directly trading and you made it possible through the mechanism of an etf well ETF
1: of, you, let, let me backstep you to uh first the country index funds they weren't available as stocks they were just the uh closed exactly. end of funds with high management fees and things but then the the, the iShares. The real genius there, the guy who hired our consulting team in there, felony Lee Cranefuss, who worked for Patty, uh, Patty Dunn, Lee Cranefuss called us in one day and said, we are going to be the movers and we are going to create an ETF supermarket that brings institutional type products at cheap fees to retail for the first time. And we're going to do this to benefit the market. And we're going to be the first movers for one advantage. You know why? Because we have no existing mutual fund family to cannibalize. That's why Vanguard wasn't the first. That's why State Street wasn't the first. It was why IShares, you know, took the lead on all the bond ECFs out there. They 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 captured the fact that they didn't have that internal uh, problem and they went out there. State Street was trying to save something called its Navigator funds, which accounted for 10 percent of their revenue but you know companies are crazy uh, i'll show you a personal story i was doing uh the, there used to be a specific stock exchange they have four tech indexes we were calling them the techies i was doing this for new york life investment management the sec had approved it we were going to go effective on the following monday that wednesday four, four days four business days before paying effective all the wholesalers all of them from Mainstay walked into the CEO's office and says that if you launch this ETF, we're leaving you and we're taking our customers with us. And what happened? Uh, we didn't launch the ETFs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so much for that. Uh, I was, I was, I was just curious that something similar might have happened there. The the ETFs and the genius, as you say, um, it made so many things tradable and the country indexes. Was one, one example, one was like regions, you know, there's a lot of places yeah. in Africa where it's hard to trade, um, huge transaction costs, hard to get into the stock exchanges. If you read Jim Rogers, um, you know, it was uh, usually his biggest problem was not to buy stocks or to actually to, ex- to, to execute the stock transactions, always opening an account, getting a brokerage account, incredibly difficult. That's and there's true. minimums and you have to be registered. And trust me all this kind of
1: thing, yep.
0: Yeah, and I always felt an ETF would be great. I mean, obviously, the ETF would walk in, say, has a million dollars in each country, say, in Africa, and then retail investors could, could take advantage of this. Do you think that's, that's coming up that's actually on the horizon? Because there's very few Frances in Africa, that might have other reasons, there's very few ETFs that, that, are, that are listed right now.
1: Well, the, you know, you, you have a, a few on the, Je, on the Joburg, J, J, JSE, and you actually yeah. have, I think, about two dozen in, in Mauritius,
0: yeah, the Mauritius yeah. stock exchange, but they don't they not hold assets or they don't they don't track anything that's only in that Africa, right? So that's Mauritius is usually Indian investments because it's a, it's like this the tax haven for most Indians, and obviously South Africa is there, but the rest of Africa, let's put it this way, or sub-Saharan Africa.
1: There, there, there are you know there are burgeoning markets there. Uh, certainly, that uh, that you know there are some Egyptian ETFs. I think a handful. There mm-hmm. are. Uh, um, but most of them don't have enough liquid stocks to have a, a mar- market out there. And on the fixed income side, of course, a lot of the Islamic markets, you can't hold debt, right? The, yeah. the, Islam, it's, it's a sin to hold debt. It's, you know, it's not Sharia compliance. So the, those are a couple of the issues. But they're thin markets. The exchanges are, aren't there uh, there. Uh, it's not like India where there are a lot of Indian ETFs but unless you're in India it won't it doesn't um, you know there's no reasonable way to trade it without paying a lot more for the transaction than the, the fund is worth
0: do you think there is there is a shot for like gap and I think we, we have that in the u s but do you think there is a product that kind of or a marketplace where where you can trade irrespective of borders kind of like a, like a Bitcoin universe for, for equities. Uh, do you think that someone is working on this or someone has had that idea before? It seems to be, you always pay way more if you go into a country as a foreigner because you can't go to the best possible instrument
1: that, you know, this, this is a very interesting point in many ways to me. And, uh, yeah, there are things that you can do. Uh, but there's so much politics. You would almost, you know, this is where cyber currency or baskets of cyber currency may eventually play a role. Because right now, uh, if you have to clear through the currencies and everything, that's, and that's the problem with even emerging markets ETFs. There are so many currencies and clearing and fluctuation. And those are the efficient ones. And what yeah. you're talking about are frontier markets. And that's where, yeah, there are a couple frontier markets ETFs, but they're not very liquid. And, 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 you know, the, the, these are the reasons there. But I was involved back in 2002 for three years in something that we called EuroClear. We wanted to have European clearing on the euro and be able to clear all the countries by euro. You know, one clearing system for all of Europe. We yeah. thought we'd have it done. Uh, we started in 2002. We thought we'd have it done by 2003, four, five, six. It's 2021. It still doesn't exist. We gave up.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Europe is probably much easier than, say, say a good part of Africa. Um, yeah, but get, getting
1: I, all the little idiosyncrasies and all the, you know, and and uh, greasing all the hands that wanted to be greased for regulatory approval was too much for us.
0: I can imagine. Uh, but do you think there is a, a crypto future for for equity? Can you kind of, you know, there's all these synthetic funds, so you, you basically there's just have absolutely like local, no local Bitcoin? Equities. There's
1: yeah. absolutely no reason equities can't be denominated in crypto and in fact I think there are some nascent ones that are uh, I will defer to my favorite uh, cryptocurrency uh, expert Matt Hogan over at Bitwise he's uh, done very thorough research on that and would highly recommend him as somebody to speak to if you're looking for a crypto program he's great Matt Hogan yeah. over at Bitwise I, I, will do, I will do that yeah I will do that absolutely um, but yeah but, but from a conceptual standpoint Yes, there's no reason that uh, burgeoning companies, especially uh, ones that uh, don't want to be gamed, can't or wouldn't issue stock denominated in Bitcoin on a on an on a cyber exchange.
0: Yeah, people called it called this an ICO, right? And the ICOs have gotten a really bad rap. They were the not coin necessarily offer. companies you wanted to invest in, but that seemed to be the precursor to this, right? But it have, there was That's no the regulation. Basic.
1: I, I I guess you don't remember when the tech bubble was burst by the mezzanine financiers and and uh, Go, Goldman Sachs and uh, uh, and uh, Morgan Stanley proclaimed e-commerce is dead. Dead people are always going to want to come into a brick and mortar store. Well,
0: they hopefully <laughs> didn't put too much money into that belief. What they uh, <laughs> Goldman it, Goldman Sachs is is more clever than this.
1: Um, uh, do you, you know, know Goldman Sachs didn't even have a website till 2003? They thought the internet was for clowns, techs, and retail?
0: Yeah, well, they're, they're not good at predicting long-term trends, let's put it this way. They're really good to do it. I don't know what it is, but steering customers who who seem to be slightly less clever than them and steering them into a product, they make a lot of money. And then they, the clients usually still make some money, but way less than, than they do. And they seem to do this in a, in a way that's, that's kind of magical. Or uh, well, I don't actually know who are the clients of Goldman Sachs, but maybe we just need to advocate them. It's like these, all these German banks, right, that, that bought these structured uh, mortgage products. And uh, that was fascinating to me. Why would, you, why would you ever buy those, right? I mean, there is things that appeal to a lot of German fund managers, but still, that seemed ridiculous. But they bought it by the billions.
1: And with the exchange now allowing the direct listing and everything that, you know, the, uh, the value of an investment banker is getting less and less and less. And, you know, which is a good thing because investment, I'm a, you know, as you know, I'm an ESG advocate an advocate for transparency and advocate for fair, open, and, uh, 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 and transparent. And uh, Goldman has always been the opposite of that. Investment banking has always been the opposite of that. We we fire people who don't give positive uh, recommendations on our investment banking out there. You know, now, 20 years later, the lie has been put to, for the most part, to sell side analyst recommendations. The lie has been put to the uh, trading model that you have to trade through these guys that are giving you some kind of advantage, the lie has been put to all these uh, things that they made money as an intermediary. The last cash cow was investment banking, and the lies being put to that uh, too. So, if you tell me that on a uh, current PE or PB or price sale—well, uh, there's no sale—or uh, price cash flow basis that Goldman is cheap, I said, "Yeah, but well, I'll bet you'll get cheaper because the, their business model doesn't have a future."
0: Yeah, I, I would agree, uh, but I thought that a long time ago, and they're still holding up pretty well, and uh, well, Warren Buffett is out now too, but I don't know if this is a, a good or bad sign, but, but I see the mega trend, but I, I, I thought it would have happened already, maybe maybe am uh, I'm you know, too you, unpa- impatient.
1: Yeah, that, and that's the thing about quants, they tend to be very smart and very early and very impatient. That's, that's, that's our, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? That's just a-, uh, a characteristic. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so one, one more thing I wanted to pick your brain at, and I don't know if you've, you've seen this. So Mike Green is a fund manager who used to work for, for Peter Thiel. And he's been coming up with this theory um, that, and maybe it's not his originally, but it's something he, he propagates. And he's saying, you know, there's all these ETFs now and that that, that most of the transactions or most of the investment is basically done by passive investors, right? So passive investors is basically, I have money this month or right now please spend it on something like my mix of ETFs or one
1: particular ETF. So it's basically the obvious case in there, the 401k or the 403b over here. You've got your option. Here's my index fund. You dump it into the index fund or you put it in a, uh, what do they call that? Lifestyle fund and that lifestyle fund uh, puts it in the index for you, or you put it into Betterment and they put it into the index for you. But you're, or or something that was averaging your dollar cost averaging. And every time you put it, it goes into the index, and uh, and and uh, the that's not going to make the index more top-heavy. By the way, it's just going to keep the same proportions if you're the only investor. If if only if the only investors are more index investors.
0: Right, right. Well, what 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 he was what I was trying to get to is he basic argument is well we have this massive amount of passive investing, and it's basically ninety nine percent of the market. We just don't see it. So there's very few active investors who basically do the arbitrage game. Um, of buying low and selling high, either. So that's why we have this high volatility. Again, it's a theory, we see higher volatility, because we either have passive investors just dumping money, irrespective of prices, and valuations, or we have passive investors saying, no, I need the money this month. Uh, so I'm not investing. And that's basically this, this this depression cycle that seems to drop the market's Pretty quickly, like we saw it as a margin, the market dropped within a few days, yeah. dropped, like what, 40
1: percent? A- Analysis of the flows do- doesn't hold out with that at all. First of okay. all, the overall um, in uh, market cap weighted index funds with U.S. assets, the overall percentage is at an all time high, but that's 34 percent. So it's still 66 percent is, is not indexed. And that's not that's, you know, retail, institutional, all of that put together. Uh, and that was that was from PwC. They just had a study on that with uh, S and P. So you you still have sixty six now. Of the sixty six, a lot of it is tracking the index. It's active money that's tracking the indexes, and they can't get too far away. So they're you know you can call them closet index funds if you like. I think that's in one of those over ter- overdone terms like greenwashing, which at the end of the day probably hurts uh, people who believe it more than it helps them. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, but you, know, you can call it a closet index, whatever, and others have to go there. But it's, uh, uh, there's still 66% of the money and there's still enough money there that is you know, calibrated on the demand for that stock. Why the demand is there for that? Is it, you know, uh, it's not all, one thing is, is for sure, stocks aren't valued the way they used to be, and I just gave you the reasons why they aren't. So it's not on, you know, projecting what the past re- uh, earnings were, pu- pushing those I- earnings or revenues or book value forward and saying, okay, this is the right stream for it because those numbers are all wrong and don't have to do with the value of the company. But what, what they do want to know is uh, what they are being put or bet or flows uh, according to wh- where they think the most attractive place to put these quotes and monies of. But if you want to know my opinion of the number one factor that's kept the market so resilient and has it as, as high as it is, and I'm not the first one you've heard that from, but I certainly think it is. At the end of the day, what, what is the stock price? Done? What, what, what is the, one, the if you're, if you have auction pricing, at the end of the day, what, what is a stock price on?
0: Well, it's certainly a future expectation, right? So you you either expect it to rise or
1: uh, drop. basic, basic, basic. Supply and demand. Supply yes. and demand. So what okay, so here's the demand, here's all these dollars, and it's going into the stock. What what where else could the, the money go? Well, in uh um invest uh what do you call it? Companies could use it to invest in in, uh, land. They could use it to invest in equipment. They could use it to invest in people. They'd rather buy back stock. Uh, Individuals uh, who uh, could use it to put in fixed income and get half a percent for 10 years there's nowhere else to put the money that they think they're going to get a better return than in their own stock or in, in in the existing big stock and to bet against the companies that are doing the best again you should know something more than the market does and unless you do you should probably just go with the herd
0: yes true and well the herd can go the wrong way that's always the trouble right that's yeah. I think what, what a lot of investors are currently
1: but how many it, people have gotten fired or gone broke waiting for the herd to go, go, go the wrong way? Timing is everything.
0: <laughs> that's another story. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And now we're back to what I started with, Torsten, the hubris factor. Yeah. You, oh, I'm, I'm an investment professional. I'm smarter. I'm going to be a contrarian. Let those those uh, rhinoceros, let those... Uh, um, lemmings follow follow the crowd into the sea. I'm gonna be the smart one. I'm gonna be there. Yeah, but we're closing out your book today. How smart were you? Not too smart? Well, see you later. You don't have our money anymore.
0: Yeah, it doesn't work so well with these short squeezes, right? Um, (laughs) You're you're very vulnerable there. Uh, Do you you think we, we, a lot of macroeconomists describe this as a low productivity environment and the low productivity environment just makes it very hard to find opportunities and we see this with the super low interest rates, very few areas where you actually find decent growth. That seems to be according to what, what investors tell us, because the prices have risen so much, seems to be tech. If you, if you get to predict this, do you feel we, we keep, we're going to be stuck in this low environment, um, productivity and growth environment for quite some time when this is about to change?
1: It's a, an excellent question. Uh, not one I, I have some thoughts. But but, but uh, no no uh, sagacious answer or any answer that would say well don't do what you're doing now uh, I I I'm not as uh, and I'm also not somebody who will ever predict 0 or 1. Oh, I'm going to be 100% out of the market or or 100% short the market or I'm going to be 100% in the market. I, I don't believe in that because I don't believe any of my quant models and I have a lot of them right any of my theories or any of my experience will be 100% accurate in the future or 50% accurate in the future.
0: <laughs> 51%, that's that's what we want, right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it it's it's really tough. Number one, I want to know what just what I told you Will there be somewhere better to put the money than the, than the U.S. equity market? Right now, the only other place people are making money and can do it and like to do is emerging markets. Emerging markets debt is very popular and emerging markets equities. And, yeah, you can do that. Is the risk higher? Yeah. Some people, like myself, put the traditional 5% uh, allocation to gold in case things go haywire in the uh, equity. Because the one thing about gold, that may be correlated sometimes, not correlated sometimes. If equities totally go to shit, gold will do fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so, and <laughs> and, and some <laughs> people as another safe haven asset, you know, I... Uh, I'm not convinced of that. I'm not saying it definitely isn't, but I don't have enough evidence to trust it to be that kind of an asset to me. So, so there are lots of things you know, in terms of diversification and what will go there, but we, we'll go to a new normal when there is either inflation enough to raise rates, uh, you know, uh, if we have 100% employment, is it one of the things that uh, Maxine Waters and Elizabeth Warren want the nation to pass through with their 50 uh, 50 plus percent majority. Uh, if they if we have that kind of thing, we would have inflation. If we have inflation, we'll have higher interest rates. If we have higher interest rates, we're going to ha- uh, some of the mar- money will leave the equity market.
0: Yeah, but I think. The 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 question is given how much money we print and how it seems that we add inflationary pressure for a long time now. We've seen asset prices rise quite a bit. We've seen that not just in equities, but we've seen that in, in lots of different assets. Strangely enough, the consumer price index and lots of things that consumers buy, they haven't risen much, which I think is great, right? It's a great achievement. But it seems it seems. the the inflation that we track seems to be stuck in a certain area, irrespective of what we do, how much money we print, um, even when we had really good employment numbers before COVID, it wasn't much affected. Have you ever thought, but what's really going on? What there hasn't been been is a
1: bidding war on salaries. The median salary hasn't gone up, and that that is the key indicator in inflation, along with key commodity prices that you need. And if anything, reliance on those commodities has gone down. Those are the big Big two factors that will actually move inflation. This money supply, Milton Friedman argument, I think, has been proven wrong more times than it has been proven right. Uh, You know, again, we're like dogs with bones. We can't get rid of those theories. I'm an empiricist. The last five times I've seen that trial, it hasn't worked. M3 is bullshit <laughs> as far as, you know,
0: yeah. actually causing- well, there, there seems to be this, this this marriage, right, of emerging markets, especially China and, te- and technology, that has been a bigger impact than before. Uh, maybe just because we look at the world now and it affects the U.S. different... I, I, I'm, I'm really curious uh, to find that that one answer. Maybe there is no such one answer but why we had all these seemingly strong inflationary impacts but they didn't really change the CPI itself. And I, I, was, I was listening to... David Rosenberg, and he's like, you know, the, one of the biggest inputs is literally rent and is, um, the prices you pay for fuel. If they're relatively stable, the CPI won't move irrespective of what the food prices do, for instance.
1: Exactly, and, and that's exactly what's been happening.
0: I, I Really, thank you for doing this. Um, I know it was kind of a um, bit last minute, but uh, we covered so many things I really wanted to talk about. really appreciate it. Take day. care. Take care. Bye-bye.